0: And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller Travis.
1: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks. And today we continue our series on carbon podcasts with Michael Green from the Carbon Action Business Association. Welcome back, Michael. How's your summer going?
2: So far, so good. Everything is beautiful here in Boston, and finally, some summer weather.
1: Fantastic. Our topic today is how to move forward with carbon markets in North America and the implications of recent carbon legislation in California. Our guest is Arjun Patne, policy director of Winrock's American Carbon Registry. American Carbon Registry engages with regulators in California and other jurisdictions to help ensure that market-based climate change mitigation programs address the full range of emissions reduction opportunities. In this way, he advances greenhouse gas mitigation that delivers economic opportunities as well as environmental and social benefits. Arjun previously established the U.S. Carbon Trading Desk at the multinational corporation Cargill and subsequently worked with USAID to advance international forest carbon markets. He has an M.S. in Environmental Management and Policy from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and an MBA from Columbia Business School. Arjun, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much, and thank you for that extensive introduction
2: as well. Arjun, we're, we're happy to have you here joining us. And, you know, first jump right in and uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at the American Carbon Registry. And is the team just focused on California? Are we understanding that properly? So
3: American Carbon Registry or, or ACR is broader than just California. We did exist uh, long before the California market was established. We were actually the first uh, voluntary greenhouse gas registry in the world and so we previously operated and continue to operate in the voluntary carbon markets as well uh, whereby corporations will purchase carbon offsets for their own uh, purposes of reducing their their carbon footprint and so that that continues but most of our activity now the lion's share is in the California um, cap and trade program we've been an approved offset project registry uh, since the inception of the program in 2012 or effectively in, in 2013 when it really got got going. My role here as policy director is to um, engage on matters of policy, legislation, regulation in California as well as in other jurisdictions or for other programs with regard to facilitating our role in California cap and trade, and looking at how we can support other programs as well. So an example would be uh, Washington State. They just began their program on January 1st of this year, and uh, they designated nine of our offset protocols uh, as being uh, compliance eligible, whereby we can uh, issue offsets against those protocols, and, and they, those units can be used for compliance in Washington state for projects in the in the state. And there are other jurisdictions we're engaging with, looking to play a similar role uh, in other programs as well.
2: No, Great. And we want to get into the conversation around linkage with the California market and uh, some of the other uh, potentially growing markets available. Uh, But before we even get there, uh, some of our listeners have heard over the last uh, few months a lot about uh, the California market and that was developed in 2012. And big news out of California is that it just got extended to uh, 2030. Am I understanding that properly?
3: That's right. Yeah, to the end of 2030.
2: Great. And, you know, just for the the listeners out there who aren't familiar, uh, can you give us maybe some of the highlights of of, uh, how exactly the California carbon market works Uh, and maybe some examples of of some of the businesses that you're working with that are involved there?
3: Sure. Yeah. The cap and trade program here covers most of the economy, some 80, 85 percent of the economy, and it it covers emissions from power generation, uh, including imports. It covers industry, heavy industry as well, and uh, transportation and heating fuels, meaning all of the gasoline for use in the vehicles, is also covered by the program, which is a first for a cap and trade program. And there are two types of compliance instruments there are allowances and there are offsets, and each one represents one metric ton of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent for other greenhouse gases. And the uh, allowances are issued by the state, by the, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, or ARB. The offsets are generated through voluntary reductions in greenhouse gases from unregulated sources, so from sources outside of the capped sectors. And offsets can be used to a limited degree. The number of allowances issued every year Uh, keeps shrinking, so that essentially defines the cap and the the shrinking cap, the the shrinking number of emissions that are allowable as time goes on. At at the end of each compliance period, um, each compliance entity um, has to submit allowances or a combination of allowances and offsets that are equal to what its emissions were. And so the idea is that you get... um, An economically efficient reduction in greenhouse gases, a company will ask itself, is it cheaper to find a way to reduce my emissions or is it cheaper to buy uh, an allowance or offset instead? And so each entity will make the most economically efficient decision and you will get the uh, emissions reductions where it is most cost effective to, to make those reductions.
2: You said 85 percent of the economy is covered under it. does that also mean 85 percent of the emissions or, or how many how, what is the percentage of the emissions for the state of California that is captured?:
3: I believe it is well correlated, but I don't have that at the tip of my fingers here.
2: A related question then would be um, if 85 percent of the economy is covered, uh, what was left exempt from the market and, and what was the thinking there behind leaving that out? Sure.
3: You know, largely we're looking at agriculture and, and land use issues so you know agricultural emissions could be from livestock emissions methane manure could be from uh, fertilizer application and the n2o there are other emissions also that are not that are not covered for example um, you know refrigerants are used across our economy you know old freon and such that that leak out of old air conditioners and uh, refrigerators, vehicles, and such. So sources like that. There are various types of uh, emissions that just um, don't get don't get captured. And of course, you have much larger land use issues with things like like forestry and uh, the sequestration potential there. And that's you know that's not a covered source as well.
2: Interesting. No, and so we're we're doing some very similar policy design currently in, uh, across New England. Uh, so it's interesting to see the sectors of the economy that you're covering or leaving except, and the reasons behind it. Uh, you know, I imagine California being uh, such a large exporter of of uh, agricultural product uh, that that did that kind of come into play in the decision making there as well.
3: Agriculture, you know, conventionally in this country um, has not faced the same types of environmental regulation as the industrial sectors of our economy, and I think there are different reasons for that. Um, But um, it is more challenging to address some of these other sources. You're not talking about clear point sources of emissions in in most of these cases.
1: Michael, can I jump in with a quick question? Arjun, what are some of the reasons why you think, why is it the agricultural sector is less regulated than the industrial sector?
3: Well, I mean, I don't think we can discount the fact that there is a political aspect to this um, historically, and so this, you know, it applies not just to to air pollution but to water as well, and you know, runoff into our waterways. So it's just, um, you know, there is an, uh, a regulatory burden that would come along with this, and um, there has been less willingness to impose that regulatory burden on farmers.
2: So, in a in a somewhat related question of you know the, the political aspect of creating something like a carbon market. Uh, you know when this uh, policy was originally promoted, uh, there was you what know, tw- twelve billion dollars in revenue uh, that was supposed to be going towards various programs and and that's really yet to materialize. It seems that the market is shifting faster than uh, some might have anticipated. Why is this? Is it really just the market being uh, in private sector being able to move quicker, uh, or, or is there something else in the in the policy design that you're seeing that's the reason for this?
3: Yeah, I mean, we have not seen a small amount of money, but you're right. We haven't seen the type of revenue that that might have been um, expected. And um, there are other reasons, aside from just the market moving more quickly, that this has been the case. And the primary reason is the success of what are commonly termed the complementary measures here in California. So that is the aggressive renewable portfolio standard, meaning the aggressive goals for increasing renewable energy in our California consumption electricity consumption, what's termed the low-carbon fuel standard, meaning mandates for lower-carbon transportation fuels, energy efficiency initiatives, uh, incentives for electric vehicles, and other programs, that have all played a significant part in reducing our emissions. And in so doing, that means that the demand for allowances has been reduced. So if you think about if we could snap our fingers and say all vehicles in the state are now electric, well, the demand for allowances associated with emissions from, from burning gasoline would, would suddenly be zero, which would be a good thing for the environment. Obviously, we haven't moved that quickly, but um, with respect to our emissions cap, um, with other measures, we have managed to uh, reduce emissions below where the where the cap is right now, which has created something of an, that success has created something of an oversupply in allowances. If we were more wholly reliant on the cap and trade program uh, without these complementary measures, then certainly, you know, we would have seen much more revenue and then likely just sort of been, been at the cap or closer to the cap rather than being um, significantly below it.
2: So I want to switch paces just a, a little bit and talk a little bit about how this was moved through the state. You know, this seems to be a, a real push in leadership uh, from the governor wanting to, to extend this cap and, and making it really his own prerogative. And and it's interesting that uh, studying other carbon markets, cap and trade schemes or or carbon tax schemes, it usually revolves around a strong center figure role, whether it was the governor in California or what happened up in British Columbia. But looking at the rest of the state, correct me if I'm wrong here, but 40 uh, members in the Senate, 80 in the Assembly. And there is a strong, not majority, but there there is a strong Republican hold in both. Is that correct? That's right.
3: There is is—it's exactly one third Republicans in both and exactly two thirds Democrats in both.
2: And how uh, was the relationship between the governor and, and uh, both, I guess, the Senate and the Assembly and then the Republicans and Democrats, how did that play out as far as making this a bipartisan issue?
3: Yeah, well, bipartisan or some would say tripartisan. Some people joke in California that they're really three parties, that you have Republicans, the moderate Democrats, and then the more, the more liberal Democrats. And, you know, they certainly represent different interests and different perspectives. So it was a monumental challenge to get everybody on the, the same page to get a, a two-thirds vote in favor of this legislation. You had folks you know, more on the, um, the more progressive end of the spectrum who have had much more concern for local air quality issues of uh, criteria and toxic pollutants. Although the cap-and-trade program wasn't designed to address those, They very much want to see those types of reductions come along with our climate efforts. You have the um, moderate Democrats who, while largely favoring climate action, have an interest in it being more cost-effective and more accommodating of economic interests. And I would say most of the Republicans in the legislature remain opposed to California's climate action on the basis of the costs that are required to address climate change. Not you know questioning climate science, as we see in other parts of the country, but because of the imposition of the costs. Now, certainly there are some variations at the edges, and we did get um, seven or eight Republicans, well, one in the Senate and seven in, in the Assembly, what the, the House is called here in California, to vote for the legislation, and there were a handful of Democrats who did not uh, vote for the legislation. But that's that's kind of how the political interests uh, were aligned and how the uh, coalition was cobbled together.
1: So, Arjun, I think that I think the environmental justice community, the folks who are concerned that the folks who live closest to these sources of pollutants, um, that they were kind of left out of the thinking of the original uh, legislation in California and they kind of, I think, they also felt that they were the environmental justice community. Kind of felt it was a driving force in actually getting the original legislation to actually happen. So, what was done in this version to address their concerns that local air quality issues and folks that were living near facilities might bear the brunt or the burden disproportionately?
3: So, uh, there was companion legislation passed. And I don't want to speak for that community. There were um, certainly a lot of folks who didn't think that this package went far enough. But companion legislation, AB 617, addressed air quality issues. That legislation established a a community air monitoring program that hasn't existed before at a a much more detailed level and um, requires a a strategy to uh, address criteria and toxic emissions in communities with high exposure. And uh, in addition to that, there's the requirement for an expedited retrofit of pollution control equipment at industrial sources. So those, those measures are meant to get at those issues. But in addition to that, the two-thirds passage of AB 398, the extension of the, the cap and trade program, has uh, potentially a great benefit with respect to air quality issues. And that is this. With the two-thirds passage The legislation is inoculated from being called an illegal tax. And if we accept, therefore, that it can be a tax, then the revenue can be used for any purpose. Previously, when it was not a tax, the revenue had to be used for purposes directly related to climate change. Um, That uh, stipulation will now be gone. And so the revenue can now be used for other purposes, uh, including... Using it in ways that can directly reduce other air quality impacts.
2: Interesting. Now, one of the things that I wanted to maybe in closing uh, just touch on is extending to 2030 uh, seems like a quite a long time horizon. Uh, maybe you could just touch on any sort of mechanism that would allow for refining the policy over time, and also, you know, I think a big part of the future of of this idea of, of the market is, is as you initially uh, brought up the potential for linkage with other opportunities you mentioned washington state but not even here in the us but also abroad and international linkage so if you could just touch on that as kind of a, a closing for the future of where this is headed
3: sure you know, certainly california cannot do it alone so the idea is that california should be a leader that uh, brings along climate action in other jurisdictions. And California is already linked with Quebec. We should be linked with Ontario soon. That's been approved and it is supposed to take effect from January 1st of 2018. Oregon is another uh, prospective partner. Uh, There's legislation moving ahead there. And those who have been drafting it and those pushing it forward have very much had an eye towards linking with California and then Quebec and Ontario as they go ahead. So there's an understanding that this is to be, a, you know, a larger fabric of action. So um, th- I think one of the questions, though, that arises is, um, you know, will other jurisdictions still want to uh, link with California with this extension in cap and trade program and the changes that have been made? An attractive program, presumably is one that achieves greenhouse gas goals and does so at least cost. Um, presumably one that's unattractive, less attractive would you know fail to, re- to achieve those goals and would impose higher costs. And you know we now have such things as a price cap and at the price cap, you know we have unlimited allowances that are, are printed and, and therefore you don't have an emissions cap at that point anymore now the, the, the qualifier is that the revenue at the price cap is all supposed to be used by the California Air Resources Board for measures that can keep us within our, our targets um, but that's that's a very different approach than what we've had so far and there were certainly some of the large prominent environmental organizations that were opposed to having um, a price cap because of the, it's potentially threatening the integrity of the of the um, emissions cap. And then we're also losing some cost containment measures, or at least having less effective cost mitigation. Offsets are facing uh, much greater restrictions going forward, and we have a possible adjustment to the allowance budget, meaning a reduction in the number of allowances uh, post-2020 based on the oversupply that there was previously, and that, that could remove a lot of allowances from the system. So, we have certain things that are being done that will inevitably drive prices higher. And then we we have a cap at which there's, you know, some question as to our ability to stay within our GHG limits. So I I think it remains to be seen, but, you know, no doubt, you know, California continues to be a a climate leader and does offer an, an ambitious program that others would be able to link with.
1: Fantastic. Arjun, unfortunately we're out of time. But thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, and thank you so much for everything that you're doing.
3: Sure. No, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Michael, thanks for being here this week, and thanks for leading our, our questioning. Always happy to be on the show
2: and always uh, interested to hear what's happening on the other side of the country. Just spent some time up in Quebec uh, and, and was trying to find signs uh, where they're educating the public on discussing the carbon market and the linkage with California and the cap-and-trade programs they have in place there. Unfortunately, my French isn't great.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately. So you have to work on that, Mike. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
0: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by SkiO in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about SKEO, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.